I'm Damien Venuto. It's May 22nd and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The annual government budget announcement is always a major PR opportunity for politicians to lay out their vision for the country. Labour has now presented that vision and unsurprisingly, opposition parties aren't on board with what they see. National leader Christopher Luxon said that it showed the government had run out of ideas and warned that a capital gains tax is still on Labour's agenda for the election. So what would he have done differently if his party had been shaping this budget? And what are his economic plans for the election? Today, on the front page, Christopher Luxon gives us a view of the alternative voters have in the lead-up to this election. Christopher, what is your first thought on the budget when you saw it? Well, I guess, look, what I was looking for was, I was looking for really for three things. One was, you know, is there disciplined government spending taking place here? Is there some tax relief for Kiwis so they can keep more of their own money in their own pocket? And is there a plan to grow the economy? And I guess I didn't see any answers to those three things. And I guess my big takeaway when you dive into the numbers is more spending plus more debt is just going to mean higher interest rates for longer. And that's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering for everyday Kiwis, which is really challenging. This budget also does come off the back of COVID, where we saw the benchmark for spending increase quite dramatically. An mm. economist that we recently spoke to suggested that we were spending $40 billion more than we were before COVID. So how would National respond to that problem? Would you stick with the current benchmark or would you look to reduce spending over time? Well, look, I think it's really about, I've got a different frame around spending. I mean, it's sort of a dichotomy, either, you're either making spending or you're making cuts, and actually it's a false narrative. Really, it's about the effectiveness of the spending and what it's delivering and the outcomes that it's generating for New Zealanders. But, you know, you're dead right. I mean, this government has gone from $76 billion when it came to power to now up to $137 billion forecast uh, this coming year. And either way you look at it, you know, it's close to an 80% increase in government spending. And, and the, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, if you've had an 80% increase in government spending, have we had an 80% improvement in public services like health and education uh, and other things? So, you know, I know from my past life as a CEO that you can take over a company, you can use the same amount of resources and get very different outcomes by how you choose to deploy those resources, the quality of the spending, the quality of the investment. Uh, and I think that's what it's all about. It's, it's all about the outcomes. That's what it's got to be about. And that's what I've come to politics to do. If people do see that increase in spending and they don't necessarily see an increase in services or an improvement in services, do you think that that undermines trust in our democracy? I think it definitely does undermine trust and actually government's ability to spend. And you know, you're right. I mean, if you look at, for example, our education spend, we've spent five to six billion dollars more. Yet we have uh, our worst attendance records. Forty-seven percent of our kids go to school regularly. Fifty-three percent don't. Uh, Hundred thousand are chronically absent, and we've had our lowest academic achievements in terms of uh, maths, reading, science. You know, we're out of the top ten in the world. We've dropped dramatically. Our standards have slipped terribly. So you go, well, we've spent more, and we've got worse outcomes. If you go to healthcare, we've spent twelve and a half billion dollars um, more on healthcare, and we've hired lots more extra staff. And you've actually, every single health metric has gone backwards. Not one has gone forward or got improved. Wait times for emergency departments, wait times to get access to specialists, to surgeries, immunization rates for children. You know, those are the big outcomes that we're always looking for because those are the things that make Kiwi's daily life so much better. So, 
you're spending and the conversations are, you know about the dollars well that's important on one level but it's the quality of that spending that's even more important if you and nicola willis were in charge of this year's budget what would have been the key priorities that you would have focused on well it would have been that exact point which is you know we are spending a tremendous amount of money and not seeming to get things for it or to get improvements for the new zealand people for it and so we would be going through line item by line item saying hey listen yeah, it might be an interesting program. It's been funded now for two or three years. Let's stop that and let's. And here's a great program that actually is doing really great, getting good outcomes and turning kids' lives around, or whatever it may be. For example, yeah, you know, mental health's a classic, right? Government spent two billion dollars more on mental health. Uh, we supported them in actually making that investment and that spend. I think it's really important. It's a major issue. I seriously want mental health to be elevated and I want to have a dedicated minister of mental health myself when I get there. But, you know, they spent $2 billion on mental health. And and when the auditors went through, they said, well, actually, we can't see where it's gone or where that money's gone. And yet out there is Gumboot Friday and Mike King doing a fantastic job. $2.5 million does 19,000 counselling sessions for 12,000 kids. It saves their lives. And I'm just saying, why don't we take the money out of the centre, match that and get him and power him up because he's getting results and outcomes. And so I think it's a different mentality than what you observe. And I and I know I come from outside the political system and coming into it the last two years, but it's just the way in which you need to say, these are taxpayers' money. Uh, the question is how we make it work to get outcomes for people. Christopher, one policy that you've said that you'd reverse is the removal of the $5 top-up fee for funded prescriptions. Well, it's difficult to know what the National Party's position is on prescriptions. Yesterday they were saying they were going to reintroduce the prescriptions. Today they're saying they're going to target them. They don't seem to be particularly consistent between any of their spokespeople about it, exactly what it is that they're proposing to do. It's difficult to know what their position actually is. What's wrong with that policy? Yeah, the problem is that it's it's about universal free prescriptions. And I sit there and go, really? You're going to give me free prescriptions, for example? I'm quite capable and able to afford those free prescriptions. Today already, if you actually have you know a medical condition and you've got a, a high medical bill after you've after you've spent a hundred dollars on those five dollar copays, then it's then it's free from there on through. But the, the bigger issue is the universality of it because it's expensive, right? It's six hundred and twenty million dollars over four years, and people like me are getting it for free. And I just want to see a more targeted approach. So I'm supportive of uh, free. Uh, prescriptions uh, for people who need it, uh, but it should be targeted. It shouldn't be people like me that receive it. And I think if you targeted it, let's say we just took people with community service cards or we took uh, super gold card holders, you know, that that cost would be probably something like 40 or 50 you know, million a year versus uh, what is, you know, over 150 million a year. And that, then that balance of that four or five hundred million dollars that you're saving could be spent on other healthcare needs. Let's be clear in healthcare, we've got heaps and heaps of issues and we've got heaps of needs. And so the, the bigger point is, why are you giving it to me? I don't get that. So I just make it more targeted rather than universal. How do you ensure that your policies are more targeted? Well, that's the point I was trying to make before, which is that if you're really clear about the problem you're trying to solve, you've got good problem definition, then you build a real practical, sensible solution to that problem. A good example for me is education. Well, what's the problem in education? The problem is that half our kids are arriving at high school, not at the academic standard they need to be at. The problem is at 15, just over half percent fail the most basic maths, reading and writing tests combined. You know, they now know a year and a half less maths than their parents did as 15-year-olds 20 years ago. And we've fallen out of the top 10 countries, developed countries in the world on maths, reading and science. We used to be right up there. Now we've gone from fourth to 27th in the OECD, for example, on maths. 
So that's the problem. So you say, right, but we were the best in the world and we can be again. So that's the determination. We want 80% of our kids to arrive at high school ready to go because otherwise they disengage from school. That's why they don't show up. Um, There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. So we want them to feel good about that. But we want to set them a goal by 80% by 2030 to be at standard. And by 2033, we want to be back in the top 10 countries in the world on maths, reading and science. So then you say, that's the problem. The solution is, let's make sure we teach the basics really well in primary and intermediate. Yes, there's lots of other issues we've got to get to in education around teacher support, and and that'll all come. But the first step, the logical first thing is we've got to teach the basics well. And so that's why you heard us come out and say, well, here's our policy on teaching the basics brilliantly, which is an hour of maths, an hour of reading, an hour of writing in primary and intermediate school. Uh, Make sure we've got really well-defined curriculum assessment that makes sure that the the child is actually understanding what's being transmitted and what, what being taught that year and then um, support teachers by making sure they're confident teaching those basic skills really well. So our party, the National Party, we don't believe in an equality of outcome, but we do believe it strongly, strongly in an equality of opportunity. And that's why, you know, continued investment in health and education I've committed to because, you know, that's the thing that actually helps people get from to, to better circumstances ultimately. So, you know, that means we target people that actually need help, support, so we can lift them up so they can uh, participate and they can realise their version of the Kiwi dream, whatever that may be. So it's called Social Investment. Bill English did a lot of great thinking on it. We've got to bring it into action. If you're enjoying this episode of The Front Page brought to you by the New Zealand Herald, make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts. The Reserve Bank and the government do seem to be on separate paths when it comes to bringing inflation under control. Would National be more on board with the idea of putting New Zealand into a short, sharp recession as suggested by Adrian Orr? Well, I mean, that's the perverse thing that's happening now. And I think that's where you're going to see some real, I saw it overnight, you know, a lot of international credit agencies and economists looking at the New Zealand budget going, oh, that's a bit odd, uh, because you've got Grant Robertson literally with the foot on the accelerator spending, you know, like nothing. uh, And he's embedded in so much high spending over a number of years now, and it just is continuing. But on the other hand, you've had Adrian Orr at the Reserve Bank, who's had his foot flat on the accelerator printing cash. Remember, we were the the second biggest fiscal spending government in the world in the OECD. And then we were the fifth biggest in terms of printing cash in the world. And that's why we popped domestic inflation, asset prices went through the roof, uh, and we've got such high levels of domestic inflation. Then what's happened is the Reserve Bank got freaked out and they put the foot on the brakes by taking the interest rates up. So you've got Adrian Orr pumping brakes, taking interest rates up, and you've got Grant Robertson uh, and Chris Hipkins flat to the floor on the accelerator spending like never before. So That's the tension, and those two are out of sync, and that's just not sustainable uh, ultimately. So I don't want to see a recession at all because that's a huge amount of pain and suffering for people because – you know, the story's very simple in economic history and economics and how it works is, and we've seen it in the late 70s, early 80s, you have high levels of embedded inflation. You then end up with high levels of interest rates staying higher for longer, which is what the Treasury said yesterday. Then you end up with a slowdown in the economy and you either have anemic growth, slow growth, no growth, minor recession or big recession. And then you end up with unemployment. And when people start losing their jobs and they've got high inflation with high food prices and rents and interest rates being high and mortgage payments being really high, you've got a different level of pain. That's And that really has been my frustration since taking on this leadership role. I 
remember even in the first few weeks just saying, hey, listen, there are some amber lights on our economic dashboard at the moment. Uh, you want to start trimming and making those adjustments because the longer you leave it and the longer you say, I'm not touching it and I'm not adjusting the settings, the harder the medicine becomes and the tougher the pain and consequences are for people. And you see that all around the world when you, when you study economics and see the history of economics in different countries. It's the same thing here. Christopher, you've warned in Parliament that Labour seems to be gearing up to introduce a capital gains tax. New Zealand is one of the few countries in the OECD without such a tax. Should New Zealand have a comprehensive capital gains tax? The answer is hell yes. It's pretty hard to sell it. You either kick it for touch or else we dilute things down even further and I suspect we're going to go down the dilution route. Given that our tax revenue isn't exactly looking great right now, would such a tax be a bad idea? Well, we don't have a tax problem. What we've got is a spending problem. And as a result, that's created inflation, which has then actually increased the tax take. You can imagine, you know, when food prices go up 28% and GST is applied on top of that, uh, you end up with a massive tax take. So we don't have a revenue problem. What we have is a spending problem. And that's about the effectiveness of spending and the quality of it, as we just talked about. Uh, my view is pretty simple on it, which is, you know, we don't believe that that is good for New Zealand. And, you know, the bigger issue is we've got to get more discipline on the spending side of that equation. So this government, because it's spending so much, yes, of course, it's going to continue to increase borrowing. And borrowing has gone from, I think, $5 billion in 2019 up to $95 billion is what's forecast yesterday. You know, that'll be our fourth biggest spending is paying interest on our borrowing. Uh, it is bigger than what it costs to run many, you know, the whole justice system. Um, it's going to be $22 million a day in interest costs alone. One thing that we often hear from experts on this podcast is that there's a lack of bipartisanship when it comes to those big projects or policies that need to get across the line for the country to progress. So looking at some of those big infrastructure deficiencies across the country, what's one big idea that you'd be willing to work with Labour on if it meant getting it across the line regardless of a change of government? Yeah, look, I think there's a that's a good point and, and why I've been quite supportive often of things like, say, the Infrastructure Commission uh, or a Climate Commission is because you want independent. You don't want those things becoming politicised and I think in some cases they possibly have been with appointments, but you want them independent because they can take a 30 to a 40 year view versus a political cycle, which is, you know, three years in our case. And, you know, you see it in New Zealand all the time. You know, we had a series of roads that we were supporting investment and in infrastructure. I'm thinking about the Waikato Expressway and the extensions around that, you know, and then a new government comes in and turns those off and then they get turned on again, off again, on again. And I just think it leads us to a place where you go, well, Actually, you know, Kennedy said, let's go to the moon and had the idea and people landed on the moon in nine and a half years. So why does it take us longer than that to build a central interceptor in Auckland? Why has it taken 24 years to build an eastern busway that's six and a half kilometres? You know, we've got a problem with the second harbour crossing where the bridge is maxed out to capacity. And yet, you know, we haven't got a second harbour crossing in place. And so that longer run view, I think, that you raise is actually very important. I think independent commissions can help us do that. And I also think there's different ways of working between central and local government as well. I think, you know, that could be reinvented in quite a different way in which we agree what is the critical infrastructure for a sub-region of New Zealand. We partner between central and local government in a partnership sense, and we lock and load it. So under successive governments changing, it doesn't change. And you see that happen in Australia. You see it happen between central and regional governments. You see it happen in, in the UK with, say, the Manchester City deals and things like that that have happened across the country as well there. So... I think all of that needs a lot of serious reimagining because the infrastructure investment is really critical. I was down in the Waikato 
oh, last year, and I remember meeting a young vet, and she said to me, she said, Chris, that Waikato Expressway has meant that I can do one or two extra jobs a day. I can use it, I can jump on and off it, get out to the farms I need to get to, and I can do one or two extra jobs because it's just speed, it's been more convenient. So it's got a massive economic benefit. But then she said something, she said to me, but I also can get home really fast for my two little girls. And I thought, yeah, isn't that interesting? It's got a social benefit as well. And ultimately, good infrastructure should have an economic, social and environmental benefit. So we do need to rethink it because we are quite tactical and short-termist in our thinking around infrastructure planning in New Zealand. It does seem to be that the focus in politics is on who's getting credit for big projects rather than whether these projects are actually getting done. Yeah, I'm less hung up on that. I, I just really think, you know, as an outsider coming in, it's just, it's all about outcomes, you know, and you sit there and go, we've got extensions to that Waikato Expressway we want to run through. They're actually good ideas, you know, that, that they benefit thousands of people and, you know, tens of thousands of people. So again, it's what infrastructure will make the biggest amount of difference to the most amount of people in the fastest amount of time. And let's lock and load on what those three to five critical projects are for each region. Let's agree how we're going to fund it between central and local government. Let's lock it in and let's get on with it because getting things done is really critical. Christopher, you've leaned quite heavily on your business competence in the lead up to this election, but politics is also a lot about charisma. Now, a recent News Hub Read research poll suggested that 47% of New Zealanders think that you're a little bit out of touch with the general public. This is a line that's plagued you for some time. So what's your response to that? <laughs> oh, look, I'm in touch with New Zealanders each and every week. I mean, I, I go to Wellington Tuesday and Wednesdays and I get out of there as fast as I possibly can because I think there's a real bubble and a beltway in Wellington that actually isn't representative of what's going on across the country. So for me, it's getting out and about, getting to towns up and down the country, uh, having public meetings, town halls, uh, meeting with people in community organisations, schools, businesses, and actually getting a sense of what their real issues are. And their real issues are... They want strong economic management. And, and why do they want that? They want that because that's ultimately how we deliver better public services like health and education. You know, I appreciate I'm an outsider. I appreciate that I'm not a career politician. I haven't been in it very long and people have had a chance to get to know me. Uh, but, you know, and it's also tough being leader of the opposition. You know, it is it is a hard job because you don't get, you know, it's hard to get cut through at times as well. But, you know, people get dummy and, they, and that's what they want is they want strong economic management so that we can actually get the country back on track again. Finally, Christopher, we want to end on a positive note. So is there anything in this budget that you think is worth keeping should National take over the government in October? I thought what was really good to see was the investment in our defence forces. Um, you know, they uh, serve New Zealand incredibly well, but they've been poorly paid and it was good to see their pay being fixed up. Uh, and also the other half of the other part of the expenditure was really around their housing and um, the, the supporting infrastructure that they have as well. So I thought it was great to see the money going through to the people that serve New Zealand so well and so bravely. Um, and it was well-deserved and over time. So, you know, I thought that was really good. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is edited by Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Then tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.